I'm Mitch Green, one of the pastors here on staff. Um, we are in the middle of a series um, called Hard Sayings of Jesus. And what we're doing is we are looking at phrases that are found in the Gospels where Jesus says something and at first glance we go, whoa, what does that mean? Like, what is he talking about? Um, probably similarly to what the first audience would have done where they would have looked at these passages and they would have said, wait a minute, like, this can't be for real, this can't be what he is talking about. And so this morning, um, in week four, we're going to be looking at a passage found in John chapter six. So I wanna go ahead and give you the chance to go ahead and grab your Bible, get there. This is verses 35 through 58. We're gonna be sitting right there all morning. And, and I, don't, I don't really hammer down on this a lot because we do put scripture on the screen, but this is a morning where I would love for you to have a Bible in front of you. Um, because we're going to be like sitting in this passage the entire morning. So verses 35 through 58. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, feel free to grab your phone, uh, use your phone, or there's a Bible in the row in front of you. Um, on the off chance that you don't own a Bible, keep it. It's yours. We've we got a ton of them stacked up back here. So we, um, I just want you to have the Word of God in front of your face as we sit in this passage this morning, and, and I'll get to the longer portion of the passage later, but I want to introduce us to the phrase that we're going to be wrestling with this morning, and this is found in verses 53 and 54. John records Jesus saying this to them. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Weird phrase. Unless you eat my flesh, or unless you drink of me, you will have no life in you. Now we'll get into like why that might have been weird for them, and why that's weird for us, or what got Jesus to get all the way to the point where he's physically talking about eating his flesh in front of the disciples and in front of the crowd. What brought him to this point? But before we do that, I think it's important that we understand what is John trying to set up in his gospel. Like, like, why is he writing this thing? Why is he recording these words at all? And we find this in the very end of John's gospel. In John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31, he says this. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So why does John say these things are written? Well, first, that they may believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Think, if you've been a Christian long, you probably already know this, but John's gospel is a little different than the other gospels, right? Like, he's writing from, with a different tone, from a different angle, with a different purpose. Like, the other gospels are trying to record everything that happened to Jesus' ministry. They don't, they don't capture all of it, but they're trying to capture all the important moments in Jesus' ministry. But John takes a little bit of a different angle. See, when John writes, he's trying to write in a way that the original reader and us today would read this gospel and we would be smacked in the face with the person of Jesus Christ. That we would meet him there. So he's not just telling us what happens, he's telling us why did it happen. Why would Jesus intend to do the things that he did? He even comes out right out and he says, you know, not all the miracles are in here. Just some of them. And the ones that are in here, they're in here so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is 
the Messiah, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then secondly, in believing, you would have life on this earth and in eternity. John is way more concerned with our theology of who Jesus is than that we got all the details of every single event right. In the theological world, we call this our Christology. This is that we may know Christ and we may know him proper and we may understand who he is. That we may know Jesus as he represents himself. So, so far, before we get to chapter 6, we've seen five different miracles happen in John's gospel. The first is the turning of the water into wine at the wedding, the healing of the nobleman's son at Capernaum, the third being the healing of the man at the sheep gate pool. Then fourthly, in chapter 6, we see the walking on the water, and then lastly, we see the feeding of the 5,000. And now, as Jesus performs these miracles, the same things keep happening over and over again. The crowds grow larger. Again, we know that there were 5,000 men at the feeding of the 5,000. Again, that's why the number's there. 5,000 men, not including women and children. So the crowds have grown larger and larger as he performs these miracles. Some people believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And other people, they just want him to keep performing more miracles for them. I mean, kind of like a dance monkey dance routine. It's like they see Jesus do something incredible and they go, I'm going to stay close to this guy because I wonder what I can get from him if he keeps performing more miracles. Like, I saw what he did with the fish and the loaves. What if he could do that with like Chick-fil-A sandwiches for me? You know? So people are like, they're sticking close to him, not because they see that he's the Messiah, but they're sticking close to him primarily because they want him to keep doing good things for them. And this bothers Jesus which brings him to the point where he says this phrase to them, that unless you eat my flesh and you drink of me, you will not have eternal life. We love, you know, on this side of the story, to look at these people, and we love to kind of blame their response. Like, we go, oh, no, not a chance. If I'm in that crowd and I see Jesus doing what he's doing, that I'm not going to, like, bow over and worship, and I'm going to right there go, you are the Son of God, you are the Messiah. But the reality is, for many of us, we kind of worship Jesus this way every day of our lives. We go, Jesus, I want to worship you. I want to do this thing for you, but it's really hard when I got this other thing going on in my life. Could you take care of that first? Like, Jesus, I'll worship you more you take care of my finances i'll worship you more if my kid quits acting up like jesus i got this thing that if you do this thing for me then i'll fully give you my worship so it's like we're waiting on god to do something for us before we're going to fully commit ourselves to him or we look around and we see that life's hard that's life's difficult and we go man jesus if you took care of this i'm all in I'd worship you. So it's easy to look at the crowd and say, wow, how did they act that way about Jesus? But yet, for many of us, there are many days of our life where we go, God, you can't have my worship until you give me this thing that I want. And so this is why Jesus is writing to them. He even poses this question to them. This is in verse 26 of chapter 6. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, 
You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the good of food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Jesus is saying, don't worship me just because I gave you bread. Just so something that we do every day. God, man, praise you because you gave me that A on the test if I'm a student. Like, like I'll praise you now for that, but if you would have given me the C, it might have been hard. Might have had some questions for you, Lord. Jesus says to them, he says, don't just come to me and worship because you got your fill of the loads. loaves. Worship me because of who I am. So all this leads into our text this morning. So if you're willing and able, if you would stand with me as we read John chapter 6, verses 35 through 58 this morning. This is the word of the Lord, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father." that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not you, Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say now that I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets that they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has, sent, has seen the Father except he who is from God who has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for life of the world is my flesh. Let's take a breath there. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, this is our phrase we're focusing on. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and you drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on, on my flesh and drinks of my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father Whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the father ate and died. 
Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Um, God, that we can look at this passage this morning, Lord, and we can understand you more, and that we can understand your character, that we can understand that you sent your son to this earth um, to die for the sins of the entire world, which includes each and every one of us in this room, Lord. Um, to die a gruesome death where blood was shed, Lord, where a body was physically broken that was not due to you, Father. So Father God, I pray that as we look at your word this morning that we understand deeper um, that you are the only source of true nourishment for us in our life, Lord. That we may rest in you, that we may trust in you. It's in your son, Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can take a seat. For the rest of our time this morning, I want to sit on one simple phrase. I am the bread of life. I think in these, this little phrase, it is jam-packed with meaning that can help us understand better who Jesus is and what his mission was as he came to this world. So again, if you're a note taker, just literally write those words down. I am the bread of life. If you didn't know this, in our app, we have notes, or you can find them on our website at stonescrossing.com notes, and you'll find all the notes in the different passages of scripture that we're gonna walk through this morning. I want us just to sit on that phrase. Like, when you're out to lunch later today and somebody says, you know, hey, what'd you talk about at church today? It should never be more clear that we talked about the meaning behind I am the bread of life. Because we're just gonna sit right there all morning on this phrase. So let's begin by talking about what is Jesus saying when he says, I am. Well, the first thought is we should think about our response to this. See, if Jesus says saying that I am something, the alternative response is this idea that we would get to decide that Jesus is something else, which is not true. But again, we know that's something that we see even within the church today, is that people want God to be something that he's not. So they add attributes to him. They add thoughts about him. Um, I was sitting in a coffee shop this week, and um, I, if, again, if you're ever in a coffee shop and I'm there, beware, because I'm a really bad people watcher, and I'm listening to everything that's going on and getting very little work done. But I'm sitting in Coffee House 5 this week, and um, if you're ever in Coffee House 5, too, it's like 90% of conversations are about faith, you know, that are happening in that place. And I'm sitting there, and there's a guy, and he's on a phone. He's a younger guy. I don't know if he's a youth pastor or something. He's something related to ministry. And he gets this phone call, and I don't know him at all. So I'm not being critical of him, and I wasn't on the phone call, so let's be fair. But someone called him, and they were asking him a question about if God would do blank. And his response to them was, oh, no, I don't think God would do that. I'm going to be honest with you. Most of the times I've heard that response, it's very dangerous, because see, what we're doing is, we are deciding for ourselves, well, I don't think God would do that. Not my God, right? Like, like again, I don't think he would do that. Rather than saying, well, what does the word of God actually say 
God would do? What does it actually say who God is? Again, as my time as a student pastor, this is something I see time and time again. People come up and they go, well, I think God's like this. And I go, well, the Bible says he's like this. And they go, well, I don't know. I just don't think that's my God. That's not how it works. Like God comes on the scene, Jesus Christ, God throughout the entire Bible, declares who he is. He says, I am, and then we have the opportunity to receive that. We don't get to look at God and go, no, you're not like that. No, we don't think that's what you're here to do. No, God, we'd rather you do this. Rather, we have the opportunity due to the grace of God to receive him simply as he is. So I'm not saying that we can't in the room have different thoughts about what God's like. But if you have a thought about what God's like and it's not driven from scripture, you're wasting your time. Because God very clearly in his word has revealed himself to us, not fully, but he's revealed himself to us the things that he wants us to know about him. So God from the very beginning declares, I am. Jesus Christ before the crowd says, I am the bread of life. We do not get to decide that. John 6, 36 again. Jesus says, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Now for the Jews, this was because they wanted Jesus Christ to be something that he was not. They wanted a warrior king to come on the scene and beat the crap out of everybody that has done pain to them. They wanted retribution for what had happened on this life. So they thought the Messiah is going to like come in and he's going to literally just wipe clean anybody that did anything wrong to them. That was their desire. That's what they wanted the Messiah to look like. And as we know, that's not what Jesus looked like. That's not what he came here to do. For the Gentile, as they're watching Jesus and they're experiencing him for the first time, they're saying, give me more miracles. Like, I've seen what you can do with the food. Could you do that with my money? Hey, we got the sick person over here. Could you heal them right now, Lord? Like, I'll declare you as Lord if you'll heal this person. Like, then I'll believe. If you would do this thing for me, then I will commit myself to following you. Yet, Christ came humbly to die for the sins of the entire world. He was not here for their worldly riches, but rather his eternal glory and in response, our eternal salvation. See, they wanted God to do something. They wanted Christ to look some way, but yet he came and he did something so much greater. But yet they're like, I'm not going to follow you until you keep doing these things for me. I love this quote. There's a similar quote uh, by Voltaire, but Mark Twain is recorded as saying, God created man in his, own, uh, in his own image, and man, being a gentleman, returned the favor. This is what we do. We look at God, and rather than just looking at the word and receiving God as he declares himself, we go, no, God, you got to look and act and think like me. And I'll be honest with you, like, I am, I am someone who I am, um, 
super sympathetic to people who are going through maybe hurt from church experiences or people who are, you know, trying to re-understand uh, who God is due to circumstances and things that have happened in their life. But if someone in their faith comes to a place where they are deciding who God is just based off of their own ideas, they're wasting their time. They're building a God out of sifting sand. And we as believers should confront them with that. Not angrily, not in a nasty way, but we should say, hey, you say God's like this, but man, this is what the word of God says. Like the word of God written by the authors, declared by the church for over 2,000 years, guided by the Holy Spirit, like God's in the details. If we believe all those things, we receive God as the word says. We do not add things to it. This is why reading your Bible matters. Being a Christian means seeking God, not creating him. I want to double down on this idea, um, as if I already haven't, but I want to double down on it not just because I want to, but it's literally what the text itself does. So um, in this passage in the Greek, when Jesus uh, is recorded saying the words, I am, what is used to record this in the Greek is the phrase ego ime. And if you're someone who knows Greek, I totally messed that up. But it's E-G-O-E-I-M-I. Ego ime. Ego in Greek means I am. Ime also means I am. Now, so what Christ is saying here in this passage, he's saying, I am. Do you hear me? I am. He's literally repeating the phrase. Now, this isn't the only time that we see this throughout Scripture. This is actually the same phrase that is used in the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek writing of the Old Testament Scripture in these passages. In Exodus 3, 14 it's recorded that God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. He's literally doubling down on the look. I am who I am. Anything you add to that is not about me. Assure the desire might have been, well, God, cool, we get that, but keep doing these miracles for us. He said, no, 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 that's not what I'm here to do. I am who I am. We see this same phrase used in Revelation verse 1-8, where it's recorded. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who has come to the Almighty. Revelation 21.6 says this, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. God simply comes on the scene in the flesh of Jesus Christ and declares who he is. And through grace, we have the opportunity to receive him just as such. We see this phrase also recorded six more times throughout John's gospel. Again, in chapter six, we have the I am the bread of life. In John chapter eight, we have I am the light of the world. 
In John chapter 10, we have, I am the door of the sheep. In John chapter 11, we have, I am the resurrection and the life. We also have, I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Christ comes on the scene and he declares who he is, reveals attributes of himself to us, and again, through grace, we have the opportunity to receive him as such. I want to do a little exercise here this morning, and this might feel a little bit outside of our sermon, but um, your next question is probably like, okay, so God says who he is, but who is he? Like, like I understand like that he declares himself, but I got to know like who he is to believe in him, and, and I'll, I'll encourage you, like, you can spend the rest of your life reading God's word, trying to understand him more. You'll grow in knowledge over and over again, but you'll never be able to fully capture God. You cannot put him in a box. But God does reveal attributes of himself to us throughout scripture. So I'm going to have these 12 attributes pop up here on the screen. Uh, this is a list that I found from uh, Josh McDowell just laying out the attributes of God as they're displayed throughout the Bible. And I want you to do something here with me this morning as we see these on the screen. Um, again, these are things that are declared th by God throughout scripture that are true about himself. I want you to think, what may my proper response be to these phrases? And I've written down some for myself that I'll share for you, but I just want you to think about that. So if you need time to write this down, but again, it's in the notes app. But these are the different attributes of God. Um, again, an overview laid throughout scripture. You can find a hundred of these lists if you Google them, but this is one by Josh McDowell. The attributes of God in the Bible are that God never changes, that God is all-powerful, God is present always, God knows everything, God is sovereign, he is holy, God is absolute truth, God is righteous, God is just, God is love, God is merciful, God is faithful. Again, these are the attributes of God as they are laid out throughout scripture. What we have the opportunity to do is to look at God in all his glory and say, what is my response going to be to that? Not to say, how do I change those things? We can simply say, what is my proper response? So for myself, I wrote down this week as I was spending time in prayer, I said, you know, God never changes. So don't change him, Mitchell. Don't try to change God. God is all powerful. Guess what, Mitchell? You are not. I use my full name when I'm speaking to myself like my mother, of course. Has, brings a little bit more heat. God is present always. He knows what's going on, so put your trust in him. God knows everything. Don't pretend that you know more than God. How often do we do that? God is sovereign, so trust his plan. Don't try to, you know, barter with God to get the plan that you want. Trust his plan. God is holy, so seek him and keep his commandments. God is absolute truth. Trust in him over the false truth that's displayed in this world. God is righteous, so in response, live righteously. God is just, so trust him with the injustices that you see in this world. Whew, we need that one. God is love, so display the love of Christ. Abandon the hatred. 
God is merciful. So seek him, seek his forgiveness, and forgive others in response. God is faithful. I simply wrote, praise be to God. That he's faithful, that he's going to do what he set out to do. See, again, we do not get to decide who God is. Rather, we look to understand him through his word. We have the opportunity to response and to respond to God. Praise be to God for that. So I am the bread. While we do not get to decide who God is, we also do not get to decide what God came to provide. Rather, he pours out his blessing on us because he is gracious and frankly, what we want from God is smaller than what he provides anyways. <laughs> Again, what did they want? They wanted more food. And Christ literally over and over again says to them, I could give you more food, but all it's going to do is lead to your death. Anything you are feasting on outside of Christ simply is leading to your death. It does not provide eternal nourishment. Christ comes and says he is the bread, not just like the bread. We're not talking like, you know, wonder bread. He's talking like he is the bread. To illustrate this point a little more, and I won't spend a lot of time on this because I'm going a little bit long, but, um, you know, if you've ever ordered like Chick-fil-A catering, they send you with those horrible chips. And you, I, like, you know, like they send you with these chips and, you know, and, and they're like, they're not bad chips, but I want some waffle fries with my Chick-fil-A, right? Like, and they send you with these. And, and everybody knows, like, if you're eating these chips, okay, fine, but they're not the real deal. Like, these are the real deal. This one's more for my mom. You know, there's Diet Cola, and then there's Diet Coke, okay? Like, there's the knockoff, and there's the real thing. This last week, I was at a birthday party for my son. I'm walking through, and I make this sandwich because they had this, like, this turkey there. And, and I look to my right after I make my sandwich, and I made it on a normal bun, and then I saw a pretzel bun. And I, I literally took the bun off, threw it away, and remade it. Because there's a bun, then there's the pretzel bun. Now, these are, these are just fun ways to illustrate the idea that we know, like, there's, like, a thing, and then there's the real deal. See, God came to provide nourishment that is so much greater than what they even wanted. He came to provide something that was so much better. It's not even what they thought they wanted. They just wanted him simply to fix their problems in this life. They even plead this case with him uh, to Christ himself using scripture. This is in verse 30 and 31. It says, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Again, dance, monkey, dance. What work do you do? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So what they're saying to him, they're going like, hey, God revealed himself in the Old Testament by providing manna for them from the sky. What are you going to do so that we'll believe in you? Perform a miracle and then we'll trust you, Lord. This is what Jesus' response to them. I love this because it's so blunt. This is found in verse 49. He says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. <laughs> he literally says it to them. He says, look, yeah, that happened, did it? Guess what? 
they're dead, aren't they? Like, I came to provide something so much greater. So they still don't get it, and which leads into the next phrase. Again, the phrase that we're wrestling with this morning, this is found in verse 52. They dispute amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They still don't get it. They're like, because we want a meal. Like, they're like, Christ, okay, like you say you're going to like, you're the bread of life. Okay, well, how are we going to eat you? Now, let's give them a little bit of slack here. Because they're also trying to be faithful. And, and this is still, they should not see this this way. But like, it's against Jewish law to drink blood. So, so there's a part of them that's like, is he really going to like kill himself and say drink our blood? And then like, maybe that's how we get eternal life. And they're like, well, we can't do that. You know, the Old Testament says we shouldn't. To them, they would have just said the scripture says we shouldn't. And so maybe that's what they're wrestling with. Or simply they're just saying, is he crazy? Is he going to have us eat him? Regardless, neither of these was Jesus' point. Jesus says this in verse 58. He says, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that your fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. See, the bread of life sustains us not only for today, but for eternity. We have hope for today, but yet even greater, we have a promise for tomorrow. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was uh, hanging out with Luke Calvert, one of our former student pastors in New York City, um, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't say this, they actually just had their second child uh, last night at 4.30 in the morning, so we cheer for them. He acts like he's watching, but we all know he's asleep in the hospital, um, but yeah, so like, they, they just had their second child last night. They were over at our house for dinner, and then, like, everything went down. I mean, like, everything. It was crazy. Um, so, yeah, praise God for that. Uh, Sutton was born at 435 in the morning. Um, but, yeah, so I'm with Luke Calvert and doing ministry in Harlem, if you didn't know where he's at. And we were chatting about um, different aspects of Harlem. And, and I don't know if you're aware of this or not. You've probably heard the term pro the projects. But... There's this housing in New York City, it's the New York City Housing Authority, where they've taken over these apartments, and basically you can live in them like either rent-free or like pay like a couple hundred dollars a month, which is just insane in New York City, and you can live in these houses, or these apartments, but they're literally um, almost unlivable. Um, if you could put this picture on the screen, this is, this is from an article in 2015 uh, showing just the mold, the water, um, the issues, and these aren't even aren't the worst images. I was just trying to be fair that we're in here on Sunday morning. Um, these places are filled with cockroaches. Um, they're just absolutely everywhere. And, and I was talking to Luke um, because he was helping someone move from one of these apartments to another one. And Luke said, um, I was in the house, and he said literally there were just cockroaches everywhere. And he said this is unlivable. Like, absolutely unlivable. And, and as, we, as we were talking about it, I said, well, well you know, why, why don't they fix it? Like, why don't they just, like, make it better? Like, fix the houses and make it better. And Luke said, well, I actually asked another guy that, who's been doing ministry in the projects for 10 years. And he said, you know, Luke, they could do that, and they probably tried that. But the reality is, Simply a year later or five years later or ten years later, it goes right back to the ruin that it was. And I was reflecting upon this this week. Like, man, there are parts of my 
life, days of my life where I'm like, Jesus Christ, I just don't want the projects to exist. Like, just take them away. Like, fix this thing, couldn't you? And I think Christ's response would actually be, I am. Like, I am fixing these things for all eternity. Check this out. This is in Revelation 21, verse 4. It's recorded. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. See, we look around us in this world, and there's terrible pain. There's terrible heartache. You know, and I think some of us just would go, Christ, fix this thing for the moment. What Christ is actually doing, he's at work in fixing this for all of eternity. For those who put their faith and trust in him, there will be a day where there will be no more pain, there will be no more hurt, there will be no more projects. None of this will exist. But as long as we only focus on fixing the problems for here and now, we'll miss it. Christ says, I came for something so much greater. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be at work as believers as bringing that side of eternity here now. Not saying that, you know, the work that we're doing, that Luke's doing in the projects is in vain. Absolutely not. People will see and meet Jesus through our efforts to show them that there's a greater view. That there's an eternal hope in spite of their circumstances. If we simply looked at people and we said, hey, let me fix your circumstances, now come believe in Jesus, they're going to have the same problems tomorrow. But the reality is Christ came for something so much greater. So I am the bread, which leads us to our last point of life. What does the bread accomplish? Jesus repeats his purpose uh, four times. In verse 39 and 40, he says this. He says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He comes back to it again in 47. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, I am the bread of life. Then in 51, he says, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for, li- for the life of the world is my flesh. And then lastly, the hard saying that we've been focusing on this morning. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father who feeds on me, uh, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread that the fathers ate and died, Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. In Christ, we have eternal life. The bread of life provides eternity if we eat of it. The question still remains. Are we seriously going to only follow Jesus when he gives us the things that we want in this life 
when he's offering us eternal life. I don't care who it is in the room, if you're 12 years old or if you're 12, closer to 1,200 years old. Nobody in the room, but I don't care who you are in this room. If there's something in your mind that you go, I'll worship God when he gives me this, you're missing it. He is standing before you declaring who he is in all his power and all his glory. And he's saying, you have the opportunity to receive me through grace. And in thus, you'll have eternal life where you will exist one day where none of these problems happen anymore. There will be no pain. There will be no hurt. This is what he offers to you. Um, this past week, I was, um, I was on Twitter, which I don't do a lot. I even deleted the app. But I was on Twitter, and I saw a post by Randy Alcorn. Um, we, you might remember we were doing a Heaven series a while back, and we kind of promoted his book from, from um, time to time, literally his book titled Heaven. And Randy Alcorn's wife is nearing death. And he made this post, and, and it just kind of moved me to tears as I was reflecting on the end of this sermon. And he said this. He said, a timely prayer request. On Saturday, my wife Nancy told me she felt she didn't have much time left in this world. This morning at 11 a.m., my daughters and their families will gather at our house. Nancy is right that, if Nancy is right that not much time remains, then this will likely be the final gathering in this world of our tribe of 11. Thankfully, check this out, eternal life transcends the grave. This world now under the curse is a broken world waiting and longing to be redeemed. Nancy is ready to be with Jesus. But she wanted, of course, to speak into the lives of our kids and especially our grandkids. I would deeply appreciate your prayers for her for this unique and I suspect unforgettable family gathering. A couple days later, he posts this. He says, what an emotional yet truly unforgettable time. Two of our grandsons said they would never forget this day, and the others in their own way made it clear they felt the same. Nancy, Nancy's desire was to have an eternal impact on the lives of her grandsons. Thank you, King Jesus, for answering prayers in an even more powerful way than um, had you answered our prayer to cure her cancer. And we believe your will soon will remove the cancer whenever you choose to take her home. What an unbelievably powerful message. Again, this guy wrote the book called Heaven, so I think his faith is solidly in Christ. But that we can stand here and say, Lord, our desire might be that you remove somebody's cancer, but praise you, Lord, that on the finished work of the cross, they will exist in eternity through you with cancer no more. That is what the bread of life provides. Again, I remember a very similar experience myself. A few years back as my grandmother, Rosemary Green, passed away. Gathering around family. Reflecting upon how Rosemary lived an incredibly modest life. Nothing fancy teacher died while we might have desired more time with her on this side of heaven what Christ provides is a life existing together in eternity where there is no more sickness there is no more pain he is the bread of life so in closing 
As the band comes back out, I want to just kind of leave us with a few questions. Have you put your trust in the bread of life, or are you holding out on Jesus for the bread of this world? Have you placed your trust in Jesus, or are you holding out on him until he provides you the bread of this world? If you're a believer, do you profess to believe Christ, and do you actively live like you're trusting Christ? Or are you again saying, God, it'd be a lot easier to believe in you if you just gave me this thing for tomorrow. Lastly, there are people who desperately need this message. This is the hope of the world. Not that on this side of heaven, all problems will be fixed, that everything will be taken care of, but the Lord God came down in the flesh, sacrificed himself for you and I and for all those who profess to believe in him so that one day we may dwell in eternity alongside him where there is no more pain, there is no more hurt. This is the message of the world. If we don't actively as believers in this place walk around carrying that message, we are just missing it. This is the hope of the world that we have. Not our charisma, not how well we present this message. It's pretty clear that 2,000 years ago, the God of this universe sent his son down to die on the cross for the sins of this world so that one day our relationship with him may be restored. And so we gather in this place and we praise God for that. Now in a moment, um, we are going to take communion, which, you know, you might think like we've got some tricks in our sleeves and so like we like playing the bread of life message around communion. No, the dates just fell that way. Like, that's it's just how it happened. We did not plan that. But when we take communion, it is a symbolic representation of what Christ has done for you and I on the cross. We gather in this place as community today to say, Christ, as I eat this bread, I am declaring that you are Lord of my life. I am receiving this sacrifice you gave to me when I drink of this cup Lord I repent of my sins and I'm reminded of what you had to go through on the cross to pay the price for those things that you died the death that I deserve to restore my relationship with you this is what Christians since Christ's death have been partaking in this ritual meal simply to remind us of the sacrifice that Christ underwent for us so I'm going to read the passage found in Luke chapter 22, and then I'm going to pray. And when I'm done, when you're ready, feel free to come forward and take the elements. But I want to encourage you, maybe there's somebody in this room that you've not came to a place where you've professed your belief in Christ. Where you've not said, you know what, like God, I'm holding out on you for the bread of this world. Like I want to encourage you, this is your opportunity, literally even physically, to say, you know what, as I eat this bread in this place today, I'm declaring with my mouth, I'm declaring with my life that Jesus is Lord, you have all of me, God. So I don't know where, I don't know where most of us are sitting in this room, but you have that opportunity now in this place. Don't miss it. Don't walk out that door declaring that, you know what, I'm holding out for the bread of this world.
when Christ is staring us down in the face and saying, I'm offering you eternal life. This is Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after he had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we just praise you. We just profess collectively as believers in this room, Lord, that we thank you for the ritual reminder of your death on the cross for each and every one of us, Jesus. That we can collectively in this place receive the bread, receive the juice, Lord, as a reminder, but also a declaration that, Lord, our trust is in you. That we trust in you, not simply for the promise of tomorrow, Lord, but because of who you are. That you came You declared yourself, Lord, and we have the opportunity to respond to you in faith. What a gift that is, Lord. Thank you for your grace. So, Lord, as we receive communion, work in our hearts. May this place be a community that is simply relying on you for all direction, for everything in our life, Lord. In your son Jesus' name we pray, amen. So when you're ready, feel free to come forward.